Please find our passage of Scripture uh, printed for you in your bulletin insert or find it in your own Bible, 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. We are completing today a three-part series entitled The Amazing Grace of Giving. And we'll read this chapter in its entirety. Let's read the Word of God together. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I think for most of us, the name Charles Spurgeon is somewhat familiar. We know he pastored a large church in London in the 19th century, but there was also another pastor in London at the same time as Spurgeon by the name of Joseph Parker. And one day in his service of worship, Mr. Parker said something about the 
how poor the children were that were admitted to the orphanage uh, that Spurgeon's church operated. Just an innocent remark, just an observation. Those children are really poor. And you know how sometimes we hear things and they kind of get twisted around a little bit when we communicate them to someone else? I'm sure you've never done that. But uh, sometimes, you know, if you've ever played one of those mixer games where uh, somebody starts a story at the beginning of the circle and they whisper it into the next person's ear, by the time it makes it all the way around the circle, it's a completely different story. And that's what happened when this was reported uh, to Mr. Spurgeon about the comment that Mr. Parker made in the worship service down the street. Instead of uh, it being reported he was commenting on how poor the children was, it was reported to Spurgeon that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself. Well, the next Sunday in his pulpit, Spurgeon blasted Parker verbally. I mean, he had just had it. Now, I'm not telling you that to tell you to go out and follow his example. Obviously, Mr. Spurgeon was not turning the other cheek. Obviously, he was illustrating what James teaches us in his third chapter, that the tongue is a fire. And so after Spurgeon had to say what he said that day from his pulpit, well, of course, that leaked out from the worship service and into the papers. And the newspapers in London were reporting all of this, and, and it got the town, that's what the whole town was talking about, and the next Lord's Day, all kinds of people flocked to Parker's church because they wanted to hear what he would say in response to what Spurgeon had said. Expecting heated words, some were surprised when they heard Mr. Parker say, I understand Dr. Spurgeon is not in the pulpit today and this is the Sunday they receive an offering for their orphanage. I suggest we do the same. And I think it was because the grace of that idea, the congregation was just delighted. And as the ushers started passing, passing the offering plates out, they, they had to dump those plates three times to receive the offering that day. Now that's something I'm still waiting to see uh, here in First ARP. Patrick assures me he'll be glad to play longer if, if the ushers need to dump the plates during the offertory. Well, later that week there was a knock at Parker's study and in walked Spurgeon. And he said, you know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me because you gave me not what I deserved, but what I needed. Isn't that a wonderful definition of God's grace for you and me? He's given us not what we deserved, but what we needed in the gift of His own Son, our Lord and Jesus Christ, and the forgiveness of sins we can claim through Him. The past two weeks, and even today, we have been and are talking about this amazing grace of giving and precisely how we can give because of God's grace to us in Christ. And Paul reiterates this in our text this morning in verse 8 
when he says that God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I wanted us to start with the truth of this eighth verse because this is how all types of giving are possible. Any giving that you or I do or hope to do is because God is able. It all goes back to Him and His saving grace and His sustaining grace at work in our lives. And this truth about who God is, the fact that He is able, regardless of the circumstance or the situation or the particular need, is something that Scripture tells us over and over again. All through God's holy word, we see those words, God is able, again and again. As if we need to be reassured. I'll give you just three examples. Think of that wonderful story in the book of Daniel about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow down to the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they informed the king that the God we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... You see, they knew God was able... But they didn't know whether God would choose to or not. But if not, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. And we know from that story that God did, in fact, choose to deliver them. You see, it's all about God's ability. Think about what Paul tells Timothy in his second letter when he says, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. The Ephesians heard something similar in Paul's ascription of praise at the end of his third chapter when he writes, Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. We read in God's holy word, we read over and over and over again that He is able. The question is, do you really believe that? Do you really trust in the truth of that statement? And that's a very important question because as we'll see from this passage today, faith in this God who is able is so important when it comes to the grace of giving. For the previous chapter, chapter 8, Paul has been talking about the importance of giving and how that giving comes through and by God's grace. And in our passage this morning, he begins to speak about some applications of that grace. And one application he mentions is this principle of bountiful sowing. This is something we are to do as part of who we are as God's children, be bountiful sowers because that's what God does for you and me. Think about 
all of the wonderful ways in which He sows His blessings into our lives each and every day, uh, physically, uh, spiritually, materially, on and on we could go. Paul takes what is a well-known agricultural principle and turns it into a spiritual law. A small or stingy amount of seed, as any farmer or gardener will tell you, will yield a small harvest. But generous sowing makes for a bountiful harvest. In God's economy, it's possible to give and give and give, and instead of having less as we would expect, we actually have more. Keeping in mind that there's all sorts of different kinds of wealth, not necessarily just financial. Solomon puts it this way in Proverbs eleven twenty four: One man gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Or think of Proverbs 22, 9, where he writes, He who has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Jesus emphasizes this same truth, this same principle, we might say, in Luke 6, when speaking about our willingness to forgive. Now, make sure you don't quote this verse out of context. This is where Jesus is talking about our willingness to forgive. And a lot of people will take this verse and lift it out of context and use it about any kind of giving. But what Jesus said is, Give, and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Talking about forgiveness. But you see the picture he's making of a person with a cloak and they're pouring grain in that cloak and that's how they carry it home. We see that picture in the book of Ruth with Ruth herself. Go back and read it. It's a wonderful picture. And Jesus is taking this agricultural illustration and and using it to talk about the truth of God's economy that we cannot outgive God, especially spiritually speaking. It is beyond doubt that the Bible teaches us that in some form or other, our giving comes back to us. It could be financially, but more than likely, it's spiritually. Remember how Jesus urged the giving that expects nothing in return. And the hospitality He told us to give to those who wouldn't be able to afford to repay it back to us. That's the kind of giving Jesus encouraged, but at the same time, He never shied away from the the notion of reward. In fact, his disciples said, we've given up everything. What are we going to receive? And I believe on that occasion, Jesus promised them a hundredfold. Next, in application, we see this notion of cheerful giving where Paul takes this principle we've just been talking about, this principle of bountiful sowing, and makes it very personal. 
For he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let each one. That's about as personal as it can get. That's just like God saying, each one of you here today must give as he has made up in his heart. Notice that the decision is not in our minds. It's from our hearts. This is, where, this is why Jesus teaches where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The heart calls the shots when it comes to giving and this grace of giving. I think to really understand this verse, we need to be aware of its Old Testament roots. We have to remember that in the Old Testament vision of economic life, that Israel wasn't simply just a nation. They were a community. They were a community. They were members of one another, just like you and I are members of one another as the church of Jesus Christ, as Paul teaches in Romans 12. For example, when the Old Testament prophets insist on justice for widows and orphans and the other poor of the community, this is is an outgrowth of the fact that each Israelite's own person is wrapped up in the other members of the people of God. You know, the Israelites knew that to live a righteous life, you had to worry about your neighbor. Why else were we taught to love our neighbors as ourselves? More specifically, if we look in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, there's a section in there, a section of teaching on the so-called year of release. Now follow me here. I know you hadn't read Deuteronomy 15 in a while, or most of you hadn't. You remember how just like there was every seventh day, there was a Sabbath every seventh year. There was a year of release for the remission of debts within Israel's economic life. That means if you owed money to a fellow Israelite at the end of the seventh year, your debt was forgiven. You didn't have to pay any more payments on it unless you wanted to. This was God's way of of trying to keep economically the Israelites sort of equal, you might say. There are always going to be people who can, who can manage money better than others. So God built that into the system where every seventh year those debts would be forgiven. But God knows that we all are sinful people and that we're selfish at times. And so God was worried about, if I might use that term, not that God worries, I don't think. He was concerned that His people might say, well, you know, it's almost the seventh year. I'm not going to loan this person any money because then they'll just not have to repay it and I'll be out all of that money. And that's why Moses says in Deuteronomy 15, take heed lest there be a base thought in your heart and you say the year of release is near and your eye be hostile to your poor brother. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to Him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. 
See, I think Paul takes that basic truth right there and just, just transforms it for his teaching here in 2 Corinthians 9. Because the same idea is at work. Be a free giver. Be a cheerful giver to the poor. In this case, it's the poor saints in Jerusalem. Paul thinks of the church as the continuation of God's people Israel. And just like the keeping of the Sabbath, just like the keeping of the year of release, this free giving from the heart was a call to exercise faith in the fact of God's provision that He would continue to provide for His people. We have to remember that's part of what the Sabbath was to teach us. It's not just a day of rest and worship as important as that is, but it's a day to also see that when we cease from working, we still believe, have the faith to know that God will provide for our needs. Even though, like Susan said, we've stopped and we're still. So that we can know that God is God. We have to believe that God is able. And that's why Paul brings his teaching back to God in the next verse, verse 8, where he confirms that God is able to make all grace abound to you and me so that we may abound in every good work. Paul moves the focus off of us and on to God Almighty where it rightly belongs. And that's what we must do as well. That's why faith is so important. We know from James 1 that the the Father gives every good and perfect gift. It all comes down from God. And that means that the storehouse of blessings belongs to God. And He can replenish all the seed we ever sow, whether it's material or spiritual. And not only will He supply, but He can even multiply. As verse 10 tells us, As one commentator put it, the foundation and focus of faith is that God has the power. He has the power to do what He's promised. And this means specifically as an expression of His grace, God is able to provide for His people, for you and me, whatever it is we need in order to provide for others. Giving to others is simply what trusting in God's promises looks like in a different dress. Now make sure you hear that. Giving to others is simply trusting in God's promises. If God owns everything, and Scripture teaches us He does, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, Psalm 24, then wealth is a gift from God freely given to you and me. And this means that if we really trust in Him, that it's not a problem or a challenge for us to give some of that away. For He'll continue to provide for our needs. It all goes back to the fact that He is able and we believe that He is able. And this is why we give. And give freely. You know, the New Testament in this uh, sense of offerings right here, calls for a gift that is freely given and not under compulsion. That's how all of our gifts are to be, and yet the New Testament teaches 
sacrificial giving too because we're following the example of God who gave up His own Son. And I've seen it referred to this way that in the New Testament, and I don't have really time to get into this today, but I just want to leave you with these two terms, that the New Testament for the most part teaches uh, that Christians will either be a foregoer or a steward. A foregoer is the person who gives up everything. Jesus gave up everything. He didn't have a place to put his head down at night. Paul gave up everything. It appears that the apostles, most of them gave up everything. They still had their families, but, but they went around, they depended on others to live. They gave up everything for the sake of the kingdom. They were a foregoer. Others are stewards. Like Zacchaeus, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus was a steward. He didn't give everything away. He wasn't a foregoer, but he was a steward. And he, and he, and he worked the rest of that money, managed it for the good of God's kingdom. And I think that all of us are Christian people are called to be one or the other. And maybe we'll preach a sermon on that someday, but uh, I just want to leave that with you. And I want to move on back to the text here where we see that thanksgivings are spoken of by Paul here. And even though that's true, make sure that you notice that's a response to giving and not a motive for giving. Sometimes, you know, people say, well, give to God's work because it's out of gratitude that, that you should give. That's not what Paul is teaching here. These gifts the Corinthians offer will produce thanksgivings to God, he says, and God will be glorified. All of that is clear in the text. But even though we're thankful to God, and obviously we are, that's not why we give. Giving is an act of faith in response to... To God's grace. As someone put it, as such, our giving is not a decision to participate in the projects of the church, but an expression of the fact that we are the church, that we belong to God and that we belong to one another. In his book, Future Grace, John Piper says that when it comes to spelling out the spiritual dynamics of how practical Christian obedience happens, practical Christian obedience like giving money, the Bible does not say that it comes from the backward gaze of gratitude, but that it comes from the forward gaze of faith. We either believe God is able or we don't. What do you believe? When it comes to that question of giving, is your God able or not. Now I know I've been here more than 12 years this time and four years more a long time ago, so I may have told this story at some time in the past, and if I did, please forgive me if you've heard it before. But when we were called here in 1982, we had just been married, we're newlyweds, moved in July of 1982 to a little apartment off of Herlong Avenue. $350 a month for rent. As a congregation, you were paying me $13,000 a year. And uh, 
As I say, Sarah and I were newlyweds. Uh, we didn't have hardly anything. And before Sarah was able to find a job, at the end of the month, after we had tithed to the church, after we paid our rent and utilities, our groceries, which we didn't have to buy many because you had graciously pounded us as a congregation. If you don't know what a pounding is, ask somebody older than you and they can tell you. <laughs> and after we'd spent all that kind of money, we would have $7 left over at the end of the month. That's how tight we lived financially before she found a job, which meant that we could go to McDonald's twice that month for for a date. And at that particular time, we had a six-month insurance bill coming due on one of the cars. It was for 300 and some dollars. And we didn't have it. And I didn't want to ask either of the sets of parents, and I didn't want to go to the deacons with that, though I think that would have been a fine thing to do. You know how we are, we tend to be independent when God tells us we need to be dependent. So Sarah and I decided to pray. We just prayed that God would take care of that in some way. We, we didn't know how it would be taken care of, but that he would take care of it. One day I was going home for lunch toward Winthrop on Oakland Avenue. I was in the right-hand lane. A lady was beside me in the left-hand lane. Some guy in another truck came from out of nowhere and came into her lane, and she saw him and jerked over toward me, and I jerked over and ran up on the curb, and we came to a screeching halt, and the man that caused it all went on down Oakland Avenue like nothing ever happened. And she and I exchanged information, and I came back and looked at my car, and I could tell it had a little mark on the door, but it didn't look that bad, and one of the hubcaps on the passenger side was all scraped up from the curb, but that was basically it, and I was trying to make up my mind whether to call my insurance agent or not, and about that time her agent called. He said, I understand, uh, you know, you were in this little altercation, and I want to come look at your car. And I said, okay. And he came and looked at it, and he figured, and he said, you know, the door's going to have to be painted, and you're going to need a new hubcap here and there, and he figured around some more and said, uh, I'm prepared to write you a check for $345. And I said, well, just right away. I'll, I'll just take that check right on the spot. And I took the car home, compounded on the door. You couldn't ever tell. It had been in an accident at all. And God answered that prayer in a way we could have never imagined as Paul puts it in Ephesians 3 that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think you see when we're up against the wall financially or spiritually or physically or psychologically or in some other way and help comes from a source you might have expected or maybe from a source you never expected. That's grace. That's God at work in your life. That's why John Newton in that great hymn of the church calls grace amazing. 
It's an amazing grace. No matter how great your need, how deep your sin, grace is greater and deeper. Paul says in Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It's an abounding grace. It's an amazing grace. That's why those who give, give by grace. The way that God does. This amazing grace of giving. He gives it to us, the undeserving. Not what we deserved, but exactly what we needed. After talking about grace these two chapters through and giving us all of this wonderful teachings, these truths and these principles, notice how Paul concludes all of this teaching. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.